Good cross in. Evan White, brilliant finish. And here's the danger. Sam Kerr is away. Is this to be her moment? Miedemar. And Vivian Miedemar scores again. Football 51 is back. Women make up 51% of the population. And at Football 51, we don't think they're given enough coverage to reflect that. Whether you're a die-hard football fan, a passionate feminist, or someone who just stumbled across the podcast, we've got you covered on all the issues in women's football. This week, ahead of the start of the new seasons, we're launching a European mini-series where we look at the state of women's football in England, France and Spain. First up, England. Hi, I'm Ellie Leake and you're listening to Football 51. Ellie Leake has played for Bristol Academy at the US University team Auburn Tigers, at Le Havre in France, Charlton and now Lewis. But 25 years ago, she was turned away from her primary school team. So it's like a bit of a funny story. I always wanted to play football because my older brother played football. And I seen a girl playing on his team once and just ever since then, like I copied everything he did from like the socks he put on his feet to, you know, what he was going to eat. So everything that he did, I just copied him and like fell in love with football just through that, the experience of playing with him. Um, When I played, there wasn't any girls teams for me to join and I wanted to join my primary school team. Um, Unfortunately, they wouldn't allow girls to play at that time. Um, so my, my mum actually got her coaching badges and started a girls team in the primary school and like through like McDonald's that like they all hosted the football and events at that time. So that's how I originally got into football. Yeah, she just seen how much I loved it and how ambitious I was about it. And, you know, she was a single parent at the time and just wanted us to be involved in sports as much as she possibly could. Um, I was like, into, she was a, like, she was into athletics. So she was like, the Welsh champion of 400 metres or something crazy like that. So to get us involved in the sport, she basically like would have given her like arm for us to do it. So yeah, it was great. And then, so I played for like my school and then eventually like girls teams did start like locally, which I was able to join. Um, But yeah, that's how I got into it. And it's crazy how things have changed since, you know, looking back on it now, how much it has changed since when I first started playing and wanted to play. To find out about the ins and outs of these changes since Ellie's mum earned her badges and set up a team for her little girl, I spoke to Carrie Dunn. She's the author of Pride of the Lionesses and Roar of the Lionesses, where she went to speak to people at all levels of women's football in England to see what problems they faced and how the women's game has developed, including the top league, the Women's Super League or WSL, becoming professional in the 2018 to 2019 season. Of course, the, the biggest improvement that we've seen in women's football in England over the past decade has been the introduction of professionalisation. Um, women can now make a living from playing football, and we did not have that before. Um, so, obviously, that's a, that's a massive step forward. Um, we've also seen over kind of the past, yeah, about the past 10 years, is the radical restructuring of the way that um, the national team is set up and the pathway to elite international football in England. Um, obviously a lot of credit of this goes to down to Hope Powell who pretty much single-handedly um, made the case for it to happen and then introduced all the changes and ran pretty much all of the England teams herself uh, for so long but obviously we're seeing the benefits of, of it now of an absolutely uh, professionally well-run setup with different age groups and with that um, talent pipeline. 
Before the professionalisation, the league went through a lot of restructuring to make sure it too had a good talent pipeline. Carrie talked me through the changes that the league has gone through. So when the Women's Super League was first suggested, um, the FA were taking lots of their cues from the American Women's League at the time. Um, so this was kind of roundabout just after the turn of the millennium, so probably about 2008, 2009-ish, they were starting to look at launching professional league in England. And then the American League kind of went slightly pear-shaped. And so uh, the FA decided to wait a bit longer and see what happened and delay launching WSL. And when the WSL did launch, um, the idea was um, to have uh, a small closed so no promotion or relegation um competitive league um one of the aims was to stop uh, a talent drain so what had been happening previously was all the best young players in england and actually quite a lot of the best senior players too were going to america so the younger players were going because they could get college scholarships and play a very good level of football and get a university education and then obviously the senior players were going over to america because they could play professionally and they could make a living from doing it which they couldn't in England. So the FA were concerned about this. They thought it was affecting the national team's progress. And so the WSL was intended to set up something attractive uh, for uh, the top English players to stay in England. Um, it, the idea was also to make sure that talent was evenly distributed between teams, which I find fascinating. Um, I still find this absolutely intriguing. I think it was a great idea. So the idea was that um, the way that the clubs paid their top players was kind of regulated so you only have a couple of players earning at the top end of the weight spectrum at each club so you'd only have uh, kind of two or three top internationals at each club to ensure a competitive league this is amazing i think it's really progressive i mean at the time obviously this is coming off the back of so much arsenal dominance and arsenal were dominating the domestic game in the way that doncaster bells had dominated previously and so See, like attracts like all the best players were going to these kind of one the, the top team or maybe the top two teams and it wasn't a competitive league and so the FA stepped in with WSL to stop that and so yes all these rules and regulations trying to ensure that the squads were more evenly balanced and that it would be a competitive and attractive spectacle because of, obviously they also wanted to attract crowds and I think they actually did really well with this. I mean, for all my reservations about uh, some of the ways that the WSL has been run over the past decade, I think they actually did this really successfully. And also, it was a summer league at the time. Um, the men's uh, domestic season dominates the usual football calendar. So the idea was have this small, uh, closed WSL running just in the summer. Um, the problem was, um, in the summer, you've got your major international tournaments or your Olympics or whatever. And so you end up having to take quite sizable breaks. And then you kind of forget what happened in the first half of the season. So that was a problem. And um, the other problem was that the FA Cup, um, because it runs down the pyramid, of course, was still running on the winter season. And the Champions League was still running on the winter season because the rest of Europe ran on the winter season. So... If you were a successful team, you were ending up running, you're playing matches pretty much all year round. And 
I think there's also kind of an element of tradition in most football. And I think the players kind of like the idea of having the traditional winter season as well. So that's one of the kind of big changes. Of course, in the past couple of years, as we've seen, um, those squad structures that were there uh, early on in terms of kind of restricting who was going to which clubs, they've kind of been lifted. We're seeing the development of, of a big three, I guess, in WSL. Uh, in, in the kind of the same way as you would do in the men's game. And I do think it's a shame. I think we saw it in the first couple of years of WSL with different champions in the first, I think, first three seasons. I think that was quite, I think that was quite revolutionary uh, for, for domestic women's football in England. I think that was quite nice to see. And I think things are kind of, I think things are changing and not necessarily for the better because I do think that people see men's football as, a, as the thing to emulate. I don't necessarily think that's that's the way to go. It seems like not much is permanent in women's football. Clubs often can't guarantee contracts longer than a year or two because of the financial instability. Ellie tells me the realities of that are tricky. My girlfriend plays at West Ham and she's on like a one-year deal and like I'm on like a one-year deal at Lewis. And it's just hard to like actually like, you know, we want to like save for a house and like, you know, go to like the next stages and stuff, but like you can't because you actually just don't know where you're going to be like in the next six months. Like you could be anywhere. Like, um, for me, like I've like settled down like in London where like I have like a full time job and you know, there's a bunch of clubs around here which I could probably go play for if needed to. Um, but you just, there's always that time of year after season where you just like, you always have that knot in your stomach. You just don't know what's going to happen yet next. Like you're anxious. Like we, like me and Martha, don't know if we're going to be, you know, living in the same city. Um, so there's just so much more that goes into it than just like, you know, you want a one-year deal, you can go wherever you want next year. It's more so like clubs can't actually offer because they don't know their budget for the following season to be able to keep you for a longer period of time, which is just it's, it's a struggle for like, you know, if you do want to like settle down in an area and stuff. The top league, the WSL, is professional. The second tier, the championship, is semi-pro, so most players have part-time jobs. And the third tier, the National League, is amateur. If clubs get promoted to the WSL or the championship, they have to apply to join the leagues. They have to prove that they have good enough support structure and that they have their financial and marketing plans in place. I asked Carrie if this model of professionalisation is actually sustainable. Professionalisation is a, I guess it's, it's an ambiguous term. Um, the way that uh, the league defines professionalisation is perhaps not necessarily the same way um, that everyone else would define it. These girls aren't necessarily playing football all the time. Or they don't necessarily have the same training regimes as their male equivalents would do. And it's the same with the semi-professional championship. Um, there are rules and regulations for the amount of contact hours that they should have and that they should be training and playing football and being coached by people at the club. That's not necessarily the same as they would have if they were, if they were men. So I think that push professionalisation is a good thing. I think perhaps it might have happened too early. And of course, there are then questions. If a team goes up from the championship, are they expected to go professional straight away? I'm guessing probably yes, they are. But then equally, if a team gets relegated from the WSL, are they then going to go back to being semi-pro? If a team who's semi-pro gets relegated back to the National League, 
are they going to go back to being amateur again? We're looking at kind of potential job losses, not just as players, but also kind of off the field, the entire structure that you need to run a professional or semi-professional outfit. So yes, I think there are challenges still in store with this push towards professionalization that we haven't, that we haven't encountered yet. And we have to do some thinking about when we come to meet them. At the championship level, it can be very hard to adjust to working and playing football in the second tier at the same time, as Ellie experienced. When I first came to England, like I was struggling with like the whole transition of going from you know playing professionally to like, you know having a full time job, like playing part time, like waking up at six o'clock in the morning, getting home at eleven o'clock at night, and I went through like a really difficult like um, like had some problems with like my mental health. And, you know, I, I was seeing counsellors and speaking to doctors and, you know, was advised to, you know, not play, for, not go to football for a few months because, like, the environment wasn't helping me. To help players through these issues, Jordan Gard co-founded the Women's Sports Alliance in January this year. It supports people in women's sport through brand partners, giving them deals on services or products they might need. I asked her what the biggest problems women's footballers are facing right now, especially with the COVID pandemic. Yeah, I think the main one right now is mental health is huge. Uh, the issues in mental health in female athletes and female footballers right now is massive. Um, and that might be due to not playing right now and not having some sort of identity or idea when they're going to be performing again, which is a, a massive issue right now. Obviously, now coming out of that, they do have ideas and they do have dates and they have um, schedules a competition in mind which is helping them a lot but it was hard for a lot of not just athletes but you know business owners anybody involved in sports to get through that uh, and, and sort of stay sane was really really difficult so yeah our, our mental health practitioners and specialists had a, a really hefty time in, in supporting our female footballers uh, and they did a fantastic job of doing that um, we've also had problems with Obviously, players can't access gyms, so how do they keep fit? So they've had to have access to gym equipment at home, which we have helped provide to them through discounts and things like that of our brand partners. The same with nutritional products. So we've enabled them to have discounted nutritional products to make sure that they stay at the top of their game, ready for who knows when competition is going to come back again. Um, so they were probably the three main issues right now. And if we're looking at not just the athlete, if we're looking at the clubs and the sport in general of football, then the main issue right now is the loss of sponsorships uh, and the lack of budgets and the budget cuts that are going on right now. Um, and we're finding more and more now are coming back club-wise and their players are kind of putting on social media, I need a personal sponsor, you know, rather than the club being able to find a sponsor to cover the players' sponsorships, the players are having to go out there and say, I need a personal sponsor, 250 quid a year, who's going to sponsor me? Uh, and that's kind of the way that it's going right now. In terms of club sponsorship, that's going to be more difficult because brands are kind of looking at this pandemic that's just happened and, and have said, well, what am I going to get in return? What, what if this happens again? Women's sports isn't in, in a position to give me a return on investment right now. So, you know, how am I going to make sure that I make some money? So, of course, I'm going to go and support the men's football team. Uh, or, or a different sport or a different, um, a different environment to put their money in. But that, that's the main issue for, for athletes is probably mental health support right now. And for clubs, it's, it's absolutely sponsorships. Ellie plays one tier below her girlfriend, Martha Thomas, who plays for West Ham in the WSL. 
I asked Ellie if they ever compare the differences between pro and semi-pro football life in England. Yeah, all the time. She, she, she's not allowed to complain about anything because <laughs> she, gets, she gets so much more than us at uh, West Ham. But um, it's good because, like, you know, I'll always, like, eat right and stuff because she has the time to cook me meals because she's not, you know, cut, like, running around all the time. And, like, I do have, like, the support of her. Um, being there um she does you know she gets like she has like a bit of envy of me like having like a full-time like sustainable job as well because like she doesn't have that at all like football's her complete income um you know she could be get injured and completely out of the contract within like a year and like wouldn't know what she was doing next so I think it's it's definitely black and white in terms of like how we look at things and we both see the good things in what it's like to be like part-time and have the you know, sustainability of a full-time job and then being a footballer where you're constantly like under pressure and like having to like, perform well and play well because you don't know when or if the next contract is, the next contract's coming. Jordan has talked to lots of women's football players in her role and found many of these differences in the support between the leagues. The Super League players seem to be quite set with the support that they have from the clubs and so they get really, really good support you know, you say that loosely in, in comparison to the men's team, you know, they hardly get any support, but they have good support in terms of training advice, nutritional advice, um, injury prevention stuff, because they're in full time. And that's the difference. The championship teams, they're not in full time. And so the contact time that they have is very, very minimal. And so the difference that I would say between championship and the National League and the Super League is the contact time that they have in terms of injury, injury prevention schemes. Um, a lot of the work that they do and the training they do has to be in the gyms by themselves, at home by themselves. Whereas in the Super League, you're training full time. And so you have that support and that background. You know, you know exactly what training you have on what day, what the training load needs to be. The coaches can um, measure and track your menstrual cycles. So everything is very specific to that player. And that's really, really helpful in preventing injuries. Whereas in the championship and in the national league, you don't get that. Coaches have no idea when the players are on their periods, which is a, a massive, massive issue. And lots of research has been gone into that now. Uh, and probably lots of injuries have happened off the back of that. Um, because it's not no fault of their own. They're just not in enough to monitor those situations. If they were in full time, which they don't have the money to do that and they don't have the means to do that because that means that the players can't have a job on, alongside it, which means that they'll have to have a full time wage playing. That's not going to happen. We're not at that stage yet. So how do we monitor you know, when players are, are, are at their highest risk of getting injured? And that, that support isn't any fault of, like I said, the coaches. That's just a, a structural um, glimpse of, of an issue there. The problems go even further down the pyramid, as Carrie explains. I think it is important to remember that the third tier of women's football and below, as you say, um, they, are, they are amateur. They're run by volunteers. Um, the FA Women's National League, you've got a chairman and you've got um, the rest of the uh, board. They're volunteers. So, yeah, yes, it's great to see the WSL and the championship um, have increased investment and have this move towards professionalisation. But I think it is important to also remember that even these clubs being run by volunteers, they do need facilities. They do need investment. They're not just kind of having a kick around on a Sunday. These are women who are taking their sports seriously and they, they do need support of their own. 
For a picture of the grassroots game, Carrie told me about the London-based grassroots club, Gold Diggers FC. God bless Gold Diggers. They work so hard and they've had so much success. I, mean, I spoke to them for Roar of the Lionesses back in 2015-16 and then again for Pride in 2018-19. And their growth over those three, four years has just been incredible. They have people on a waiting list to go to training midweek. That's how big they're getting now. But yes, they have to have a waiting list because yes, they could get in more coaches. They haven't got any more space. They can't get hold of pitches. And what they found is that um, men's teams block book areas, you know, years in advance for their teams don't necessarily turn up. So you have all these women uh, wanting to play and they've just kind of been outmaneuvered by a block booking five years ago. And yes, it's difficult when you're in in a city to find kind of green space to play on. But even kind of at council municipal pitches, um, they're finding this problem. So yeah, I mean, access to pitches and resources um, are absolutely crucial because um, obviously we know that the FA and the government have uh, announced plans to increase participation in sport uh, for women with football being the fastest growing participation sport for women and and, uh, and girls. And if they can't get to, on a pitch, if they can't kick a ball regularly, then you know, that's those targets are not going to be hit. So yeah, this is, this is a huge challenge. Barclays became the WSL title sponsor last season with a three-year deal thought to be worth over £10 million. I asked Carrie if that money would trickle down to support those at the lower levels. I spoke to Kelly Simmons at the FA and when I was writing The Pride of the Lionesses just after the Barclays deal had been signed. And I said, you know, that money for the WSL is fantastic. Don't get me wrong. What about everybody else? And so this would have been, I don't even know what year it is anymore. Things are so difficult. Um, so this would have been, yes, 2019. And at that point, they were still looking to get a title sponsor. So like Barclays for the championship. So the championship teams would have some kind of uh, level of support that way as well. And I was like, well, what about the National League? And again, the National League, you, you, you would be hoping that they would get their own title sponsor because that Barclays money is for WSL. In terms of trickle down, no, it's not going to trickle down through the leagues. What it would do, would, it would potentially trickle down to the youth setups at different clubs. So kind of grassroots um, investment that way. But in terms of kind of your National League, Premier or Division One, no, they're not going to be getting any more investment or any more money from that sponsorship as yet. Even at the higher levels, there's no income from broadcast rights and tickets to matches are sold very cheaply. Some are supported well by their men's teams, like the big three, Arsenal, Chelsea and Man City. Others are not, like Liverpool, whose men's team won the Premier League this season and whose women's team were relegated from the WSL. I mean, for the big three clubs, it's been fantastic. I mean, it's been, you know, well, I went up to Man City in 2016 to see uh, some of the facilities there and see what the players they were working with. And they were being treated exactly the same as the men. They had exactly the same access to the same uh, facilities. It was fantastic. And, you know, it's great for them. I've been to London Coney and I've seen and the way that the Arsenal women have their own little hub now and the way they're kind of integrated into the training setup there. It's brilliant. I've been to talk to the Chelsea women at Stamford Bridge and when they've been kind of training over at the gyms and yes, 
fantastic and it's really good and i think uh with chelsea having access to um king's meadow and with the city women having access to the academy stadium they've got their own little spaces i think that's fantastic but then you do have this kind of division where you have big men's clubs who haven't been supporting their women's teams as one might have wanted them to. You know, obviously, we've seen with, with, with Liverpool, the, com the comparative uh, success and failure of their men and women this season. Obviously, it's not a resources thing. It's an allocation of resources thing. And I think it's great that we have a team like Lewis up towards the, in the, the top end of the women's pyramid to show that you can be an independent team and have some success. But yeah, I, I do worry that it is going to be the clubs that have the resources to throw at their women's teams that are going to succeed and start to kind of pull away from the rest. It is good to see a competitive league, but unfortunately, such is the nature of professional football. I think this is the way uh, we might have to put up with it for the time being. Ellie certainly found the level of financial support in England very different to when she played college football in the US. So I went to America and I was a student athlete at Auburn University, which is in a conference called the SEC, which is one of the best conferences that you could play, you know, soccer, I'll say it, you know, out there. And it was just the step in like professionalism was insane. Like we went on like private jets to games, like we'd eat at like the nicest restaurants. Like we had so much support, like not just on the field, but like, you know, you'd have like academic advisors, you would go see a sports psychologist once a week if you wanted to, like just people, you always had someone to speak to, like the coaches just were completely invested in you as like a person and a player, um, that the support was just out of this world. Like it was just going from like black and white almost to like women's football just like starting out in England. And, and you know, you have like 2000, pe 2000 fans watching you play. It was just, you know, it was insane how we was treated as like people as well as like football players was just something that I really like appreciated and almost didn't understand how great it was until like you step outside of it. Um, with like the pressure of money being such an issue in, you know, the mostly like the second division, like, and some of the first team division teams as well. Um, you know, it does turn into very much a business and you know, the way you are treated in some situa situations, it, it can be like a hard pill to swallow. I asked Jordan Gard, how bad is the financial situation? It's really bad. You know, there's no beating around the bush. It is really bad. Um, you've had sponsors pull out left, right and centre, understandably, because they're not making a return on investment and they're worried that their money is just going to go to waste. But when I've, when I've spoken to these sponsors and, and sponsors that are interested in coming in now, you know, you have to say to them, in one or two years time you're not going to make a return on investment but in three or four or five years these sponsors are now and these brands now are stepping up and they're, they're understanding that in three or four years they are going to make a return on investment and so what we're now seeing is because the media has done actually quite a good job at making sure people know the state of women's sports right now and, and the way in which they need support more support um, and that's that's done wonders for brands now recognizing that and understanding that if they come and support women's sports right now, women's football, first of all, it's going to look really good for them. And second of all, they are going to make money in three or four years and they're kind of the first ones in there to do that. I've seen firsthand the sponsors and the brands 
that are coming forward and are showing more and more interest in women's sports. And that's of no coincidence. And maybe they are coming on board because they want to look good for their brand. But who cares if they're bringing in money to women's football? You know, we decide what we do with that money. So we're going to use that to the better for the better. Uh, and I genuinely believe that this pandemic, it nearly killed women's sports in general. It nearly killed women's football. But you know, we've got to be robust and we've got to adapt to changes. And I think that a lot of changes have gone on behind the scenes and things are going to be better coming out of the pandemic than it was before. Ellie couldn't play with her team during the pandemic, but they had weekly quizzes and were given a strength programme to stay fit, even if she had to assemble the gym equipment herself. But she's glad that the whole women's season was ended early, even if the top two men's tiers got to carry on. I think it was a smart decision to end the league where it was. Um, clubs in the first division and the second division are in like different like you have like Chelsea and Man City that probably had like the players had access to like gym equipment and you know were able to like train and stuff like that like you would see like the men's players have like football pitches in their back garden and a personal trainer all the time whereas like for us like we're trying to manage it on like like I had my cousin's rusty weights from in the garage that have been in there for like maybe years and we kind of like threw together our own little like gyms that like meet between me and Martha and like tried to like, you know, stay in shape as we could, but without being like in the environment and there being such a different spectrum of like the kind of like support and like training you would get in, like I feel like it was just, you know, a sub it was gonna be like a subject to way too many injuries, like it was too much of a risk, like financially for clubs, like especially in like the championship, we were like we rely on like the fans coming to games and like paying for tickets and like we wouldn't have had that so like it could have been like detrimental for a lot of clubs and like the furlough scheme helped Lewis get through that and like we're in a good situation now um whereas like the men they also like supported us in coming back to um training for this season so like they helped pay for like our coronavirus, coronavirus tests and stuff which has enabled us to come back um but yeah, I think it was like a, a very uncertain time. And, you know, we didn't know if, you know, Lewis were going to survive. We didn't know what clubs were going to survive. And I think we've been quite lucky to come out of it, you know, on this end and, you know, look forward to the next season. Um, a lot of girls just lucky to have contracts at the moment and be playing for a club because you really didn't know what was going to happen at the start of it. Um, yeah, I think it was a smart decision to end the league. Jordan agrees. There are two different sides to the argument, and I very clearly sit on one side, but there are lots of people that have said, you know, to treat men's and women's football differently is um, disrespectful, it's gender discrimination, it's sexist, uh, and, and all these different kinds of accusations. I actually think that it was a really, really good and brave call for that to happen, and I don't know the reasons behind why that happened, but from where I'm sitting, to treat men's and women's sports and football differently is a really, really good thing because there was so much uncertainty in women's football when the pandemic was just coming into place. None of the players knew when the next time they were going to earn money was. None of the players knew where they'd be next season or if the season was going to continue. Should they move back home? Should they stay in their player houses? Should they move to a different player house? There was so much uncertainty. Where do I need to get a job? Do I need to get a job in Cardiff? Do I need to get a job in London? Nobody knew, and, and for mental health as well, that was a really, really big issue. Um, and so in the men's game, they knew they were going to have a job, you know, whether the season continued or not. It was easy for them. 
what happened was the, the women's sports and the women's football league stopped. That means that meant then that the girls could look forward to the next season whenever that was going to be. All they knew was that they had to keep fit. They probably all moved home. They had to keep fit and they had to wait for the next season. And I think it was a really, really good thing that men's and women's sports and, and, and football was treated differently. Um, yes, we would love it to be in a place where it can be treated the same and as equals. We're not there yet. And, and we'd be really, really stupid to think that we can treat them the same because we can't. But at one club, men and women are treated the same. Lewis, where Ellie plays. Yeah, so like at Lewis, um, they treat the men's and women's teams completely equally, like same wages, like in like a lot of clubs, the women are usually put at the bottom of the priority list in terms of like training times. But with Lewis, like I get home, I live in London and I travel down to Lewis and I get home before like my roommate who plays for Palace or like my roommate who plays for um, another club, like I'll get home before them because our training time isn't like near enough the middle of the night. <laughs> and yeah, it was really funny. Like the other day I seen like um, one girl who's a women's footballer tweet like um, women's footballers will understand what it's like to pass the guys who are pulling out the cones on the roads. Because like you get back so late sometimes, like the feeling of missing those roadworks and like the roads, <laughs> it's just like insane. And um, yeah, Lewis, like I obviously get home earlier than I was going home at Charlton. And um, yeah, it's been like such a good environment. But they're not asking for total equality. A lot of people think that, you know, as we're wanting to be getting like the same wages and treated the exact same way as the men, which just isn't the case at all. Like all we want is to be able to, you know, play the sport we love and, you know, actually like give ourselves like a hundred and like 24 hours a week, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, like committed to being a better footballer and actually like earn like a living wage from it. So we're like, you know, you'll get home, like a lot of us at Lewis will get home at, you know, 10 o'clock at night and be up for work at like half seven, like, I'll be on the tube at seven o'clock in the morning, like when I'm going into the office. And, you know, luckily my company do allow me to work from home now. Um, but yeah, a lot of people are not lucky. Um, yeah, it's just all we're asking for is to get, like be respected and, you know, be able to, you know, earn a living from doing something which does require, you know, 24 seven, like to be like a professional at it. Um, it's just, it's, it is exhausting because, I don't think people really understand the struggles that being a, a female footballer is. Most of the time, there's nothing to do with people. It's just what they have to do to survive as a club financially. And um, it would just be great to, you know, actually be able to, you know, get paid a professional wage to where you wouldn't have to worry about waking up at ridiculous hours to go and work so that you can, like, put food on the table and, you know, pay for your rent. It's just, yeah, it's, it's tiring. The Women's Sports Alliance are working with the FA to give players more support. We've had really good conversations with the FA and they're actually quite supportive of what we do at the Women's Sports Alliance and we've got a meeting with them at the start of September which is really, really great. We essentially, as the Women's Sports Alliance, want to help the FA to protect and support the individuals in, in women's football and we want the FA to make sure that we as a partnership, look after not just the Super League, but the Championship and the National League too. Because essentially, we've got young players coming through the National League, coming through the Championship, that are one day going to make it to the Super League 
without that support, and I was one of those players, I believe that I didn't have enough support and protection. I played in the Super League, I played internationally for about a year. You know, it wasn't, it wasn't good enough for me. It was very average. I did it without a lot of work. Um, with support, I believe that I could have played for a bit longer in the Super League and a bit longer internationally. Um, and for these other players, I think now what we need the FA to do is to support not just the Super League, but to support and, and let the WSA help support the Championship and the National League. With the possibility of more support going forward, I asked Carrie, Jordan and Ellie what their hopes and predictions were for the future of women's football in England. Yeah, I mean, I suspect that the Premier League is going to take over WSL sooner rather than later. Um, where that leaves the Championship and the rest of the pyramid, I'm not entirely sure. I think that will be something to keep an eye on. Um, yes, I think that there will be a broadcast deal for WSL in the very near future, which I think would be fantastic. I think the FA player, so being able to watch any of these matches um, live on a, on a Sunday afternoon has been fantastic. Actually, I think that's been really, really forward thinking of the FA to give fans access to this high quality football. So, um, yeah, I think that that's going to be a, a great step forward. But obviously, we don't know when we're going to get back in grounds. So that's kind of an odd thing. I mean, I saw that um, they've mooted using WSL fixtures as test projects for getting spectators back to sport safely. And I think it's great that WSL and top level of elite women's football is being recognised as an important player in spectator sport in terms of something that can be used experimentally, that can be used as something that's innovative, that's something that's forward thinking and that can be used as a test ground to improve sport for a lot of other players and spectators. So yeah, I'm kind of, I'm kind of looking forward to it. It's a horrible time at the moment, but hopefully next six months we'll be back to playing and back to a competitive WSL. I think we need to bring in longer term positions for women's football. So for example, a, a job ad that went out, I think it was for a six month, a six month, um, job placement to look after women's football until we got to the World Cup. Now, why is that job just for six months? We need jobs that are for three or four years to look after the long-term future of women's football. That's the first thing. Second of all, we need more security, financial security for these players. Um, so from the Super League right down to the National League, we need to support them financially more, especially in the Championship because these girls are playing semi-professionally and they are having almost a full-time job as well. And that's really, really difficult. If we can make it a place where these championship players don't need to have a job or don't need to have a full-time job, they can just work part-time one day a week, for example, if they had more support that way, if we brought in more sponsorships for them and really pushed attendances, um, you know, school, school kids having tickets, getting to the games, making sure that championship players have more financial security then women's football will be in a position where we can really grow we can grow the competition there'll be more rivalries more fans will want to go and watch the games the, the competition will be better and therefore brands will want to come on board and, and really support them you know it has to start somewhere we have to make sure that we're doing everything we can from a governing body position to make sure that we've got the staff and we've got the money to try and help these individuals lower leagues is definitely going to take a little bit of a hit because of coronavirus like i know like the leagues below us some of them aren't even back training yet which is unfortunate um but i think 
the momentum that women's football does have right now. Um, we just have to keep like pushing for us to get, you know, on like the bigger platforms and, you know, get more exposure. Like we need more investment so that we can get to the level where, you know, we are able to play full time. Like most girls want nothing more than to be like a professional footballer full time and um, having that sustainability um, would be great. And I do think that it is something that is achievable um, time frame. I wouldn't know. Like at Lewis, we have, you know, a goal to compete in this league and then like a three-year goal of, you know, to go professional and then like to kick on and try and like get promotion into the next league. Um, so it's just like trying to keep the goals attainable, but also like realistic. And yeah, it's probably going to make those goals stretch out a little bit because of coronavirus, but I don't think it's, you know, I still think we have momentum and we're going in the right direction as a sport. Thank you so much to Ellie, Jordan and Carrie for giving us that insight into women's football in England. Look out for our next episode tomorrow evening about women's football in France. We'll be talking to a player from the top league and an expert journalist to find out all about what's going on there. In the meantime, you can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at football51pod. We're always interested to hear your feedback, so please do get in touch. À la prochaine, à la proxima, see you next time.